you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to jump into some questions today. Back into the normal format of the podcast. Last week, took a little break with a theme. Talk about that more in a little bit. Got more response to that probably than any podcast I've ever done in my life. We're back into some questions this week. What would you do if you had somebody close to you that was trying to talk you into doing work that you knew you didn't love? I mean, that happens a lot. Comes up again and again and again. We got some questions on that. Here's our theme for today. Does this scare you? I'll have a quotation to kind of unpack that in a little bit. Here's some of the questions we'll be looking at. Dan, is God beating me up or trying to get me to move? Isn't that an interesting dichotomy? Should I just stay here and take it like a man? Or is God trying to tell me something? Well, here's another one. Dan, how can I break out of our capitalistic system and still survive? Interesting question there. We're getting more and more questions that deal with money, our money system. We'll, we'll kind of jump into that. Dan, should I just build my business or get a job as a safety net? Should I take a pay cut and hate my work to make my wife happy? Dan, I want to find my passions and dream vocation really bad, but it's like my brain and heart are drowning. Now that's a picturesque image, isn't it? My brain and heart are drowning as I'm trying to find my passion. Well, here's a quotation. Now, this comes from Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the first female elected head of state in Africa. She said, if your dreams do not scare you, they are not big enough. Now, think about that a little bit. Why, why would you have a dream? Why would you dream of something if it didn't involve change, risk, uncertainty? I mean, nobody has dreams like that. Nobody has dreams about you know, just keeping life the way it is right now. So I love that quotation. If your dreams do not scare you, they're not big enough. Well, we're going to jump into a whole bunch of questions here. Got some success stories, some cool things. Just want to remind you, there's a couple things coming up. Innovate is coming up real quick now, coming up May 22nd and 23rd. That's going to be the second one this year that we've done. The first one, we unveiled the new Eagle. Now, those of you coming for the one in May are going to get to see that with uh, some landscaping done around it, where it's really got a dramatic setting at this point. Whereas the the first gang that saw it just unveiled, it was just on a bare piece of dirt and a a rock that we had moved into place to uh, on which it stands. But uh, you'll get to see a little more uh, development around the 48 Days Eagle at this point. Incidentally, I may wait till then to tell you what we've named it. We've given the Eagle a name, a lot of reason for that. But um, I may share that at Innovate when you come and join us on May 22nd, 23rd. Hey, I got a quick clip here I want to play from one of the attendees who was just here at Innovate in, um, well, just a couple months ago. Hello, Dan fans. My name is Dr. Rafael Perez. I just attended Innovate with Dan Miller and his family, and I've got to tell you, this is the first time that I felt like I belonged. Their warm, friendly, and hospitable atmosphere was like nothing I had ever experienced. And then to top it off, he gave away a minute of his personal airtime. Dan Miller has gone crazy. Cuckoo. Well, like I said, my name is Rafael Perez. 
and I currently blog and podcast at ubergoodexperience.com. That's uber, U-B-E-R, goodexperience.com. I help small businesses do the business of customer service better. We do that by focusing on the customer service lifestyle. I'd be honored if you would visit my site and take a listen on iTunes. Hey, thanks, Dan, and all your fans for listening. Oh, and uh, hey, Dan, I was just kidding about you being crazy. Well, there you go. Dr. Rafael Perez and his wife, Alessa, was here uh, for Innovate just a couple weeks ago. Left a testimonial, delighted to share that with you. Again, if you're if you think that you have a creative bone in your body, you better be given expression to that. People who don't give expression to the creativity they have end up regretting it and uh, resentful and frustrated. As uh, as old people, I've told you before, talked about in Wisdom Meets Passion, that the biggest regret of those who know they're facing death is. I wish I had had the courage to live a life authentic to myself rather than living out the expectations of others. And a lot of times that has to do with buried creativity. Well, gee, I love, you know, playing the guitar. Gee, I love, you know, growing a monkey grass. Gee, I love sculpting wood. Gee, I love, you know, doing art. But, and then we always get the but, but everybody says I could never make a living doing that. Well, Innovate is where we... Uh, destroy that myth that no you can't make money doing that that's where we have people coming i've got a guy that i think is going to be here well i better not announce that because i need to firm up with him that he's going to be here but he has an unusual skill that has served him extremely well you would never believe that he's actually making income doing it but he does, you would recognize instantly if I told you uh, who he is and what he does. But anyway, I'm going to confirm that he's going to be here for Innovate to share his unique talent. But we're going to have a lot of people here who are sharing their unique talents, things they've done that are unusual, and yet they're making a living. And more than making a living, they're thriving financially. Now, I want to share a couple of success stories. But one of the things I want to share, too, and it is a success story of Joanna and I just got back from a couple weeks of being out, uh, playing around and being in the sun, doing things that she especially really enjoys doing, but had a great time down in Florida, one of our favorite places to go. But while I was there, of course, I had a stack of books to read. And one of the books that I read was The Promise of a Pencil. Now, it's a story. Adam Braun is the author, and it's his story about having his life changed when he asked a little boy in Laos, actually it was in India, asked a little boy, you know, if you could have anything in the world, what would it be? And the little boy said a pencil. And it just put his life on a new trajectory. He dedicated his life to opening schools in the most impoverished areas of the world where they don't have schools, where little kids would love to have a pencil. But rather than saying, gee, an iPad or a a new car or a, a fancy house or something like that. The little boy's request was the thing he would most like to have in the world was a pencil. Well, that seems like an impossible dream. I mean, how could Adam start putting schools up? I mean, he wasn't wealthy, came from a, a established family, but certainly not unlimited resources to just start and do that. But at this point, they're breaking ground on a new school every 90 hours. Now, it's called Pencils of Promise. You can look that up. 
but uh, I read the book, The Promise of a Pencil, and it just it thrilled me to hear about somebody who had a dream that everybody said couldn't be done, couldn't happen, no, it could never be done. Well, he just went ahead and did it anyway. And And guess what? When you start to develop a dream that other people have said is impossible, and then you start to get a little success, other people want to jump on board with you. Other people want to be involved with something that seemed to be impossible, and now you're proving them wrong. But I love those kind of stories. Well, here's a note from Anthony who says, Dan, I listened to your podcast on Friday. heard the question from Troy regarding Berea College. I had a question from somebody, Berea College. He said that they have a real innovative method of educating their students and invited Joanna and me to come up there and visit us. And I shared in last week's podcast that we were very familiar with Berea College, my mother-in-law having uh, been a graduate of Berea College. But got this note from Anthony, who kind of uh, reminded me of something that I had forgotten. He said, I wanted to point out one more connection you have with Berea College. I teach at Berea College and used your book, Wisdom Meets Passion, as the main text in one of my courses this summer. I had previously corresponded with you regarding the use of your book, and you were most helpful. Uh, The book spurred great discussions and great presentations from the students in the class. Would love to have you come to Berea anytime. I teach this particular course only in the spring semester now, but plan on using Wisdom Meets Passion the next time the course is offered. Thanks for your help. Well, I remember that now when he said he was going to use that, and I gave him some of the bonus items, gave him free access to the field manual that we created to go with Wisdom Meets Passion so they could use that as their study guide for the course. So I appreciate that connection. Consider that a great success story. Thanks for sharing that. Here's one from Kiana. Kiana, I believe is the way the name would be pronounced, from Florida. I was introduced to 48 Days during the summer of 2013. After reading that book, followed by No More Dreaded Mondays, I really committed myself to changing my relationship with my income and work. I have you to thank for that. I've been in education as a teacher and in other roles for six years. I'm now transitioning into a consulting position that I've desired for years, and it allows me to earn more money, work fewer hours, have greater flexibility to focus on pursuing my additional passions. Thanks for your mentorship. I recently published my first book, Time Out with God, a devotional for educators, which is available on Amazon. I've experienced success using your recommendations to promote the book. As an educator yourself, I would love to send you a copy. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, Kiana, for that kind offer. And I've already sent my um, address in so I can get a copy of that book. Be glad to uh, read that. Always read new books. Love when people send me the books that you're writing. Well, hey, let's just, we're gonna, I'm gonna stop there because I got a whole bunch of questions that I wanna get into. So we're gonna insert this here real quick. Just a reminder, love hearing your success stories. If you got something you wanna share with us, just shoot it in to askdan at 48days.com or you can go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link and you'll see that little starburst there that says if you got a question or comment, you can put it in there. That's where you can do it. So if you got a question, shoot it in. Love to consider it for an upcoming podcast. If you got a success story, love to hear those as well. Love to hear them every week coming in. All righty. Let's slow down Queen here and get back into our questions. This one comes from April, who says, Dan, please help me help your listeners who are salespeople who cold call businesses. Now listen to this. 
April says, I'm an executive assistant for a high-level IT professional. I get five to 10 calls a day from salespeople trying to bully their way into my boss. And she says in all caps, that doesn't fly with me. The approach they should take be taking with me is to tell them how they can best serve us and ask me graciously if I'm willing to get some information in front of my boss. The way to him is through me. So wouldn't it make sense to make nice with the assistant? Anything other than that will not get you in front of him and he will never answer the phone directly. Some other helpful tips, never hang up on the assistant. Don't ask for the boss's voicemail and know his position before you call and stop the aggression. Thanks, Dan. Love 48 days. Well, that's a useful piece of information to pass along. If you're doing cold calls, do your homework. My goodness. And then be nice to the gatekeepers. Can't imagine people violating that at this point. You know that's the way to get to people who are decision makers. Be nice to the gatekeepers. Otherwise, they'll slam the door just like April is talking about here. Well, here's a question from Dean who says, Dan, thank you for your actionable advice throughout the years. I need your wisdom. My company was acquired two years ago. Since then, the culture and job has worsened. Outside looking in, you'd think I'm doing well, being promoted to a director title to lead my team of three, while workload and accountability increased, resources and empowerment have not. I hope to develop my people and enable, but unfortunately my promotion was it so my boss wouldn't be the one to have to fire a fellow teammate. And so he wouldn't have so many performance reviews. I've certainly prayed on what to do. Nothing just happens. God is in control. How can I tell if his plan is growth through perseverance or if he's turning up the heat to get me to move and leave? This job is affecting the other aspects of my life as well now. Well, when you're in a situation like that, I love the question. It's something that we're all confronted with all the time. When we run into an obstacle, does that mean that we're supposed to be persistent? But we hear a lot about persistence. Wow, you can you know, conquer the world if you're just persistent enough. And you hear about you know, the gold miner who left his fortune just three feet from the gold strain that the next guy found. I mean, we hear about that a lot. But is that always the case? Is it always admirable to just persist, to just hang in there? Well, certainly, I hope you realize my answer is going to be no. I hope your answer is no. And there's a lot of times when it's wise to quit. Seth Godin has a book called The Dip, where he demythifies the old saying, you know, winners never quit, quitters never, quitters never lose. Wait a minute, I got that all, I got that all combobulated. I'm thinking ahead here. Winners never quit. What's the other half of that? I can't even think of it here. I'm thinking ahead of what I want to say, but it's not true that winners never quit. Winners do quit and they quit often. They quit quickly, frequently. If they realize something is not working, they quit. Well, in this case, you want to look for confirmation from other sources as well as just your current frustration at work. I mean, if there are some things there that you cannot change and you're still frustrated and miserable, then I think it's probably time to move. And you're in reference to your, you know, God is in control and you're not sure what he's doing. Well, and you've probably heard me talk about, you know, my belief that waiting on God can become an excuse for indecision, procrastination, and the fear of taking action. So I think if there's a reasonable period of time that has gone by, I think if six months has gone by and you recognize the 
frustration that you're experiencing here, your inability to really change the corporate culture, change the things that you cannot change there. Yeah, I think it's probably time to to move on. It's time to leave. Now, you know, uncertainty, frustration in, or even losing a job or business is often simply a prod to a higher level of success. Now, this last week, just two days ago, as I'm recording this, Joanna and I were sitting at the the house we were staying in, in Nicomas Beach, Florida, and just outside the house, there's a, a big, big tree, and it has at the top an osprey nest. Well, this is the time of year when ospreys young are born, and that was the case here. There were two young osprey in the nest. Now, the osprey build these big, phenomenal nests. They're massive, and they use you know, brushes and thorn strands and all kinds of things to make it strong, and then they put in fur and feathers and things in there to make it kind of comfortable. They lay the eggs. The little ospreys are born. Well, at about 12 weeks old, mom and dad start doing some interesting things. They start removing the fur and the leaves, the things that were making it comfortable in there. So now we've got hard thorns being exposed and branches that are rough and jagged. Wow, and it gets pretty uncomfortable in there. And then they start flying by with these tasty morsels of food that are just out of reach. Well, what do you think the little osprey are thinking about in there? They're looking up thinking, wow, mom and dad aren't being as kind to me as they were. You know, and they're making it pretty uncomfortable in here. And pretty soon the little osprey are up on the edge of the nest to avoid the pain and discomfort. Now, you know what they're thinking, and you know what the outcome is. The little osprey's looking over the edge of the nest thinking, that's a long ways down. There's nothing but rocks down there. If I go over the edge of the nest, I'm going to hit the rocks and crash. Having never experienced the phenomenal event of being able to fly previously. Now, I was watching this nest. I really was hoping that the little osprey would come out of the nest and go over the side while we were there. That did not happen. They're really quite large at this point. And it's, it's pretty funny. There were even other birds that seemed to be trying to help encourage them. Little birds that would fly up there, land on the nest, and then fly away. It's kind of like t- telling the osprey, hey, look, dude, you can do just what I'm doing here. You got to believe this is possible. You know, come on over. Well, it didn't happen, but you know what happens when the little osprey goes over the edge of the nest instead of crashing on the rocks below. They experience that amazing new experience of being able to fly. So instead of crashing on the rocks, instead of uh, just uh, hoping to move away from the pain and the hunger that they're experiencing, they move into something they would never have experienced that they had not been encouraged To do that, if mom and dad just kept bringing them food, they'd get old, fat, and happy just sitting there in the nest. But that's not the way that it works. And I truly believe that oftentimes God does allow circumstances in our lives not to leave us in pain or hungry, but to lead us to higher levels of success that we would not otherwise explore. So yeah, I encourage you, Dean, at this point to see this as one of those times in your lives, the beginning of a new season in your life. See, this is an opportune time to fulfill your desire to have something that really is meaningful, the work that you're doing. And these thorns that you're experiencing right now are just a way to get you to take that leap of faith. 
And again, a leap of faith is not jumping into the unknown. It's doing a lot of research. It's knowing what fits you. It's exploring what the options are, having a plan of action, knowing that those wings are fully developed and you're ready to fly. So you don't just jump and hope for the best, but you plan, then take action. Well, spend a little more time there than I perhaps should have, but an important question. Christina asked, Dan, according to where I live now, the kinds of things that I give, do, and am with my community of people, feels like I'm finally living the life of my dreams. The only obstacle in the picture is when money is involved. Any work I try while breaking free from parental financial dependency ends up being volunteer work instead. I often hear people bringing up the problematic statement, it's all about the money, when communicating with them about products and services for the good of our people that have been stopped along the way. To solve this problem, I want to expand more on three processes of exchange. Tithing, bartering, and giving and receiving freely. I dream of no money involved in my process of daily living anymore. How can I do that? Well, this is a challenging question, Christina. I mean, you can live on an island where a bag full of money doesn't mean anything. I mean, you can envision doing that. But as soon as there's another person on that island, you'll start creating some means of exchange. I mean, I'll give you this bunch of bananas for that fishing net that you just made. And as soon as there's more than just two people, we'll develop a more sophisticated method of exchange. I'll trade for that net, even though I don't really need the net. But I know my other friend, Jose, would like to have the net, and he has a sundial that I want. So I'll give you my bananas, take the net from you, I'll give it to Jose in exchange for the sundial that he has, and we're all happy. I mean, mean, that's all that money does. It gives us a broader form of exchange for the things we want. Now, I love bartering. I've done lots of bartering over the years. Back when I had a health and fitness center, golly, I would love to barter with people. You know, rather than an expensive club membership, which really didn't cost me anything, there was no cost. It was just the facility was already there. Having a new member didn't have a real direct cost connected to it. I bartered for uh, new carpeting in our house, I mean, new tires and paint job on a car that my son and I were fixing up. Uh, we got a Christmas tree that we still have to this day. That was years ago, and they got a beautiful, beautiful artificial tree that we use in exchange for a club membership. So I love the idea of bartering. However, I think we're just substituting something else for what we currently have anyway. And my question is, I mean, I get this into this conversation all the time with Jared, my son. He hates the capitalistic system we have in America where people end up extremely rich while others you know, with great services or skills, stay poor. But my question regarding doing away with our money system is, if not this, then what? I mean, if it's not the money, it's going to be potatoes or furs or fish or corn. But we still gravitate to an exchange system. I don't think you can live in community with other people and not have something very similar to our money system. I mean, if I, if I want to go to Florida... American Airlines may not need my coaching services or a book that I have. So I can coach someone or sell them a book, get the money, and then I give American Airlines that money in exchange for letting me ride on their nice airplane to Orlando. I mean, you're still going to be confronted with the problem. You can't just move into a system where you 
don't have some kind of a monetary exchange. And really, now I'm going to be I'm 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 going to be kind of harsh here. Please take it for what it is. But what do you have that has value to someone else? That's really what you've got to ask yourself when you and say you end up volunteering. Why do you do that? Why aren't you doing something that has enough value that somebody's paying you for it? I mean, I think that a lot of people who want to drop out of the capitalistic system that we have are people who don't want to be accountable for what value they bring to the table. I mean, if you just kind of hang out all day and you want to have your needs met without having to give very much, then you hate the capitalistic system. You don't want you know people to be rewarded well for what they do. You don't want the dichotomy of the rich and the poor. But if you're in the game, if you really are taking responsibility for what you do have of value, then you're a player in that system. Again, it doesn't matter if it's gold coins or paper money or potatoes. It's still a matter of exchanging something you have of value for what other people consider to be valuable and what they'll part with. Whatever it is they have, they'll part with it to give it to you. Can you can build on your system, but I, I, I think you're you're hiding behind an unwillingness to step up to the plate and identify what it is you do or have that has value that puts you in the game. Well, we could spend a whole, spend a whole, a lot of time there, I suppose, on just that one question. Well, this comes from Claire, who says, would I be crazy to leave an unfulfilling job making five figures after 25 years to work for a humanitarian organization that serves those in need in various counties? pay as eight to $10 an hour and would be a one hour commute. Now, Claire, again, this is kind of a segue from the last question where somebody didn't want to have to have a monetary system would like to just exchange by using, you know, tithing and bartering and giving to each other freely so that there's no money involved. But again, you, you know, if you're in a job, now you say you're in a job making five figures. I mean, that could be $10,000, obviously, so five figures doesn't uh, give us a, a real big benchmark for what it is you say you're moving from. But let's say that it's $70,000. And now you're talking about working for a humanitarian organization that serves those in needs in various counties, pays 8 to $10 an hour, would be a one-hour commute. How can you make that work? Can you even possibly make that work where you can have a place of your own to live, buy your own food and groceries, take care of your own insurance, pay for a car, gasoline to drive one hour commute. I don't think you can make that work. I think that would instantly put you in a position where you're dependent on other people to make that happen. I don't consider that a responsible move to do. So no, I would say no, don't do that. Can you work with a humanitarian organization? Organization. What if you gave them eight to 10 hours a week? I mean, that would be wonderful. You could be a wonderful asset to them. Come to the table, not in your own desperation, but with your own cup full, so to speak, so you have the ability to give freely with a real heart of service. That's what I would consider doing. That's what I would suggest that you do. Don't put yourself in the position where you're simply one of those who are one more who is needing help. The best thing you can do to help other people, help people who are poor, is not be one of them. Uh, now, I hope this doesn't sound like just some materialistic kind of a, a greedy position, but I mean, just think about it. I mean, if you can come up with a better solution, be sure to let me know. 
Sean says, Dan, I have a question about relocation and starting a business. My wife and I are relocating to Florida from Kansas at the end of the month. We will not likely have jobs where we get when we get there. I want to start a recruiting business, which is not hard to get up and running, but will take some dedicated time to do, uh, which I don't have much of right now since we're preparing to move and I'm working full time. I've been actively networking to grow an audience of job seekers, which is easy, but I still need then to market them to companies. Right now, I'm solely focused on online recruiting on social media like LinkedIn. When we relocate, I will obviously have enough time to dedicate to the recruiting business, which is easily run from home or anywhere. We have enough money to live for at least six months, but probably as much as nine months there without having to do any work. Do you think it's wise to focus on the business to get it up and going so I don't have to work anymore? Or is it smarter to go ahead and get a job and still work on the business part-time? Obviously, I'm working. If I'm working, it will take more time, but there will be a little more stability to operate from. Is it realistic to think I could successfully launch, build and launch a business within that time frame that would be enough to replace my J-O-B? What do you think, Dan? I need your input. Well, Sean, yeah, I think that you're in a great position to be moving uh, that sounds like a good move to start with, but to be moving to a new place where you are, have a nest egg, where you don't have to generate a lot of income for six to nine months, but land on the ground and begin your new business immediately, where you use that window of opportunity, not just as a cushion to do nothing, but as the time frame to launch a very successful business. Is that adequate time? Absolutely. With what you're talking about, I mean, we're talking about a service business, a recruiting. So you are finding job seekers and matching them up in jobs. And then you get a percentage of their first year's income. And that can be a very, very lucrative business. I mean, if you're taking, uh, let's say that you're taking 10%, now usually it's more than that, but let's say that you're getting 10% of the the person's first year's income and you get a job and they're making $60,000. So you get $6,000 of that the first year. Well, you do multiples on that. I mean, if you did 10 of those, if you only replace 10 people in an entire year, that'd be $60,000 for you. But let's say if you did 10 a month, I mean, which wouldn't be unreasonable. I mean, that'd be $600,000. So somewhere in between those two ends is probably where you're going to land. Should you take a job? So you give yourself some kind of a cushion. Well, if you took a job yourself making $60,000, I think that'd be a pretty um, a bad move. Because all you need to do is to get a few more people in through your recruiting process, you know, to duplicate that income and go on from there. So no, if you've got a clear business idea like this that has the open-ended income that is certainly possible in a recruiting business, you know how to do it. I would not take a job. I'd just do this. I've got some... Golly, a lot of great stories about people I know personally who have done that, who have done extremely well in that particular business. This comes from Robert, who says, the uncertainty versus unhappiness question really hit home. I've been a, incidentally, if you, if you don't remember that, I used several weeks ago now, a quotation as our quotation for the week came from Tim Ferriss, who said, people will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. Now think about that. I got a lot of response from that. People will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. They would rather be unhappy, but be fairly certain of what's going to happen or secure in whatever 
We know that's usually an illusion, but anyway, in the sense that people think they have security, they'd rather be unhappy and secure than uncertain. So anyway, Robert says the uncertainty versus unhappiness question hit home. I've been a consultant off and on for about 20 years. I have two main clients with projects that have been running for about three years. I make better than average money and will probably be working on both of those projects for another 18 months. My wife has had a variety of major health problems over the years. She left a relatively successful entrepreneurial venture for something she hates with less money, but has good health insurance. She keeps pressuring me to leave what I'm doing and get a real job that has good insurance so she can find something better and not have to worry about the insurance. There's some advantages, but I would take a pay cut and I would hate it. I seem to be fighting a losing battle suggestions. Well, you know, I'm going to look for and solutions, not either or. This is certainly one of those situations where the things you present as the either or options, neither are good. I mean, it reminds me of the old joke about a couple who owned a mining business and then got a divorce. Remember that she got the gold and he got the shaft. Well, you, you don't want a situation here where either of you feels like you've given up your dream and now you're doing work that you love for the sake of the other person. I mean, boy, what a, what a great basis for building resentment and frustration. You don't, you don't need to. There are too many options to have both, for both of you to have what you're looking for. I mean, if you're doing something, you're doing project work, but you're in essence an independent contractor, so you have to have your own insurance. My goodness, there's so many places to get insurance today, especially now with the new health plans that are out there. I mean, you can shop in a whole lot of plans, even if you have a pre-existing condition and get something that's pretty reasonable. Do that. I mean, the, the benefits of doing something that you're doing that you love that has open-ended income and your wife doing something that she enjoys that's more entrepreneurial, that has a potential to make more money than what she's likely to be making now. I mean, both of those things are strong draws. Don't let insurance be the one thing that traps you, that keeps you from doing that. It just doesn't need to be that way. There are too many options out there. I don't know the particulars of what her health situation is, but I'm totally 100% convinced that there are options for you to get insurance where you can both continue to do work that you really enjoy doing. Great question. Thanks for sharing. Chris says, Dan, I'm a longtime fan. Listen to you. Listen to you religiously. I'm a 28 year old guy who started an event planning company about one year ago with my mother. We have a long track record of running a successful family estate planning business for 20 years, had to leave due to finances. A lot of our leads were created using free events to get people to come out and enjoy a dinner and get marketed too. But in doing that, we saw the huge demand for seniors looking to get out and have a great time. We knew we could plan the parties. Fast forward about 10 months. We're on our sixth event with average attendance between 190 and 260 people. Our latest event will be on April 23rd and we'll have 400 people. We're just at the point of tipping Wanted to see if you might have any insight or knowledge on what we can do to manage our books better, create more buzz, integrate ourselves more closely with the community. We're at the point where we're being asked by other local towns to actually plan events for their community. We think we may have a pretty successful business model on our hands. Long and short of it is we have no debt. We're starting to hit our stride with the right mix of buzz and demand. Any idea how we can keep the momentum going and really turn this into a full-time business? What a great life that could be, planning events and parties for seniors who wouldn't have gotten out otherwise. But what a great thing that you're describing, Chris. 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, the, the model for what you're talking about to do events like this is going to be based on having sponsors for your events. I mean, think about going to a 5K run. I mean, you show up and there's sponsors everywhere. There's banners, there's things you're being given as swag event, things that you're, you know, you get a t-shirt and a mug and a hat or whatever, uh, candy bars or energy bars in that case. I mean, those are all things provided by sponsors. Those are the kind of things that are going to make your events successful. You're not likely to be able to have an event where you say, well, it's $30 cover charge to get in. No, it's probably going to have to be free for the seniors. So you want to get the attention of people who want to market to those seniors, people who want to market to the people that you're going to have at your events. So become an expert at how to get sponsors, how to get corporate sponsors. Uh, Brendan Bouchard has some information on that. Connie Fife has a program on that. I mean, there's lots of them out there, how to get corporate sponsors for, even if it's a nonprofit event, doesn't matter, but how to get corporate sponsors, that's going to be your best ticket. Now, in terms of how you can manage your money, your books better, good grief, just get a competent bookkeeper. I mean, those are easy to find, but get somebody who has experience with that kind of business, event planning, and just to get them to do it for a very low fee that you can you, you can put that in place easily. I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I just have somebody who understands the kind of business I'm in. She loves the business that I'm in. She's a big supporter of what we do. And she takes everything and helps me make sense of it. Well, Daniel from Wichita says, thanks to you, I've read more after, more the four years after college than the four years I was in college. All right, I love reading and learning, but with all the available information, how do you get the most out of your books or any other great source? Knowing you read for hours every day, how do you take in everything you learn and how to implement it? especially when it's like drinking from a fire hose. Also, what books do you find yourself rereading the most often? Well, yeah, I described that we were just on the road for a couple of weeks, spoke at uh, Michael Hyatt and Ken Davis's launch conference in Orlando, and then we went on down to Nokomis, where we like to hang out, and did some exploring down there, did a lot of playtime. But in that period of time, I mean, I love to read, so I don't take a break from that. It's not enjoyable for me to take a break from reading, I love reading, so I do that even if we're on vacation, so to speak. Got a note from my publisher when we were down there, incidentally, and she apologized for sending me a note while I was on vacation. And I laughed and I said, you know, we don't really take vacations. We just continue to play in different parts of the country and the world like we do anyway. People are not sure at any given time if we're working or playing. And so we just continue that. So it's really not much different if we're in another place for a period of time. But anyway, I read a couple books that I absolutely loved. I read several, but two that I especially enjoyed. I already mentioned one titled The Promise of a Pencil by Adam Brown. It's it's his story about he, how he started this organization, Pencils of Promise, and now they're building schools all in really three major parts of the world, but parts of the world that are the most impoverished. And he tells his story about how he did that. Love that book. Also, I read Thrive, the new book by Arianna Huffington, and it talks about success in ways that are not connected to money and power. We often define success by money and power. And she says there are other things. The foundations of what we ought to look at in defining success are well-being, wisdom, giving, 
Those are the things we ought to be looking at. Now, are you doing well personally? Are you wise? Are you giving and sharing with other people? But anyway, I love those books. Now, those books I've got laying here at my desk, and they are full of the little post-it tags. Now, the way I do this, and I used to use just post-it notes, but these days I use the highlighters that have built-in post-it note tags on them. So they're real narrow, but you just pull them out of the pen. And it works out pretty well for me. I mean, I use a lot of those. So usually going through a book, highlighting, and I'm wearing out the highlighter and using up the post-it notes. And at the end, I throw it away and get another one. But then I have a book that's marked up and it's tagged with the things that I consider important. Now, as I look at the book here, The Promise of a Pencil, there are probably about 15 tags in there that take me instantly to the things that really jumped out at me, that really jumped out as highlights as I read through that book. Incidentally, the quotation that I got today came out of there. The one about if your dreams don't scare you or they aren't big enough, that came directly out of there. I mean, I had other things in this book like, um, um, well, let me just grab another. I know I had a couple other quotations out of there. Oh, <laughs> he, Adam was describing uh, choosing between two business ideas. And a friend of his said, well, there are people who can be completely in love with two different women at the same time. There are others who say they can only love one. Which one are you? And Adam says, well, I know myself pretty well, and I can only be in love with one person at a time. And his friend said, that's your answer. Pick the one, pick the business that you truly love. I mean, it's just, just those kind of things. Those are the kind of things that I'm constantly marking in books. There's another one here that says, you may be safe, but I am free. I mean, wow, what a, what a cool thought. You may be safe, but I am free. Well, those are the kind of things that I'm constantly marking in books as I'm going through them. And that's the way that I can then go back to a book very quickly, even a couple years after I have read through it. So I can walk to the shelf. Now, like right now, I'm, I'm writing a couple manuscripts for new books. And as I'm doing that, I'm always working here in my office. I don't do that at a remote location. I write where I have instant access to all the books that I've read over the years. So I can walk right to a shelf knowing that I can pull a book off. Boom. I can pull off the success principles by Jack Canfield that I read maybe five years ago. And I can go right to the 15 or 20 things in there that were really important to me, things that I can integrate into the writing that I'm doing now. So that's how I, I do that. Now, I also write every day, and you'll see a lot of my blog content comes directly from books that I have been reading currently. So you'll see things that come out on there instantly that come out in the blogs that I'm writing. And then that material ultimately ends up, you know, in other books or eBooks and, or courses of instruction, those kind of things. So I'm always integrating the things that I'm reading when I'm reading books that I really do value and enjoy. There are about half a dozen books or so that I go back to and read repeatedly. Uh, things like how to win friends and influence people, the old Dale Carnegie standard. I love to go back and reread that things like man's search for meaning by um, Viktor Frankl. I mean, those are the kind of books that I go back to and reread. And again, probably have five or six books that I've read at least five or six times. Uh, some books I read only once, but then if it's a book worth keeping where I have made notes in it, it'll go on a shelf and I'll reference that book maybe eight or 10 times for future writing that I'm doing. Kyle says, 
I want to find my passions and dream vocation really badly. I feel like I'm so consumed with it that I don't even really know myself. It's like my brain and heart are drowning. I have to ask people questions about me and they don't really know or tell me I need to relax. I keep second guessing my answers to questions like, are you a lion or eagle or an otter or peacock? Do you have any suggestions or tactics I can use to really look inward, know myself, to pursue my dreams with confidence? I love 48 Days to the Work You Love and love the podcast, which I listen to every day. Thanks for all you do. You are the man. Well, thanks for your question. I got another question here from somebody. This one came from Alan who said, how does one get clear on what they want and unstuck? Well, Kyle, with your question that you're looking for your passion, your dream vocation really badly, but you feel like your brain and heart are drowning. I'm not sure how old you are, but even with the little bit of life experience, you know, if you're 30 years old, you've got enough life experience to look back on that and start to see patterns emerging. And it's from those that we can start to really get clear on what your passion is. What is it that you really ought to be doing? Those are the times we can look and see, oh, it's when I'm working with kids that I really feel like I'm in the zone. Or it's when I'm working with ideas or things and not people at all. You know, and I am, I do notice that I'm really comfortable in a crowd of people or no, you know, I'm really more comfortable in solitude. I mean, those are just things, there's no good or bad, right or wrong, but those are things that help us identify patterns. And as you see those patterns, it gets you closer and closer to what is really authentically you And then you embrace those things and identify an environment where those things would be utilized, maximized, and it puts you in your, in your sweet spot, so to speak. I mean, if we look at a tennis racket, you know, there's, there's a sweet spot that is a very, very small spot. And if you get it right there, you get the maximum kind of movement back out. A ball bat is the same as the same kind of thing a sweet spot where if you get it right there, you get the maximum impact of that ball bat. That's what you're looking for when you identify your passion. Now, as I talk about a lot and you know, you know what, I'm going to send you a copy of wisdom meets passion because that'll help you because I talk in there about the fact that passion is more developed than it is discovered. A lot of people are stuck trying to you know, uncover their passion when they aren't engaged in the game enough to really be developing anything so they can identify it. So passion is developed as much as it is discovered. But I'll send you that book. I think that'll give you some a fresh start to help really identify what yours is. Don't beat yourself up too badly. I mean, if you're doing something that you're kind of okay with, but you don't know if it's something you really love, that's okay. I mean, the first... 10, 20 years of our careers really are designed to help clarify more than they are to really be in that sweet spot. I mean, it's very difficult at 18 to define what it is you're going to love doing when you're 45 years old. When you're 45 years old, you've got enough life experience. You can start to get clear, make the moves, do the transitions to really move into work that you do love that is meaningful. Hey, that's how it happens. Thanks for the question. Great question. Well, we're moving through as always. The time goes quickly. Thanks so much for your questions, for being part of this amazing uh, community. You know, we've reviewed some of the questions. Is God beating me up or trying to get me to move? Love that question. And it's something that we're all confronted with, but I think there are real guidelines for how we can move through that and uh, move into the next season of your life with your head held high. Uh, Should I just build my business or get a job as a safety net? Should I take a pay cut, hate my work to make my wife happy? Wow, that'd be a tough choice to feel like that's the only thing you could do. Well, our quotation, as you heard, 
for the day was, if your dreams do not scare you, they are not big enough. Comes from Ellen Johnson Surly. Great quotation. Make your dreams big enough, they scare the fire out of you. That'll give you the excitement, the incentive to do something extraordinary, do something major that hasn't been done before. Well, hey, continue defining work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.